0: I'm a strong believer that if we don't teach introductory physics to life science students in a way that helps them find its relevance, I mean, these are academically strong students and they should not be taking something just to check a box.
1: Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good Physics Day, everyone. Have you ever stepped into the classroom and found yourself surrounded by pre-health students? Individuals who aspire to be physical therapists? Physicians assistants, doctors of medicine, optometrists, dentists, you get the idea. Many of them don't necessarily want to take physics, but here they are, sent to you by their program's requirements. What do you do? Well, you could just do what you always do, teach the standard curriculum, regular textbook, regular assignments, big midterm and final. Or you could do what my guest today did, ask the medical professionals what students should be learning in a physics class. Then teach that. The respiratory system, fiber optics, and the circulatory system, just to name a few. What's that you say? You have no idea how to teach those topics? Yeah, I didn't either. But I'm learning, and you're in luck. You can register for the Living Physics Portal, a community and collection of high quality materials for teaching physics to life science students. There you can find life science-themed in-class activities, homework problems, labs, and a whole lot more. Today I'm speaking with Nancy Donaldson, professor of physics at Rockhurst University, a small liberal arts college in Kansas City. With the grassroots approach, Nancy Donaldson has built an impressive and thriving physics of medicine program. She's a proficient grant writer, receiving funding from a variety of agencies to support her curriculum reform projects. She is also an avid curriculum developer, writing hands-on active learning pedagogy in all of her courses. And she has recently gathered a cohort of fellow science teachers to share interdisciplinary perspectives and share common themes across multiple courses. In this episode, she shares her long winding road to professorship, her natural passion for making physics relevant for her students, and her love of designing curriculum that puts students at the center of their sense-making. She describes how hard work and asking her colleagues and other disciplines lots of questions has led to a program that graduates 30 majors and minors per year. And some of this curriculum is available for everyone on the Living Physics Portal. She was so welcoming, and I had a chance to see all of the amazing hands-on activities she had developed for her physics and medicine students. She is so inspiring to listen to, and the love she has for her students, and for teaching them content that they find interesting and relevant to their careers is beautifully evident. Let's get started. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Nancy Donaldson. She's a professor of physics at Rockhurst University. And, you know, jumping in here, uh, I know that your career path in higher education has had a very different start than the traditional path. You didn't spend your 20s in graduate school. Instead, you waited until, was it 40? It was 40. Uh, What were you focusing on early in your career? And then what led you back to graduate school?
0: Oh, I, my career is very varied. Um, I often compare it to a, a, a Plinko game where you get something and you just kind of let it do this thing, a little bit of faith, a lot of work and some gravity mm. in there. Um, but I uh, I was a uh, psychology and biology major at University of Virginia, pre-med. I did not like the hospital, and so I didn't pursue that. Got married, had a couple kids and Worked in a variety of businesses, uh, analysis, most things I never was trained to do, um, analysis of bank (laughs) loans, executive committee of that, didn't have a finance course. Um, And then for a while, I was a dress manager, a dress shop manager, um, just raising my children. My husband's job moved me around a lot. And then at some point, I started tutoring, and I found that I liked tutoring. And so I started working for a company to... Uh, tutor students on college prep test and liked it moved again and um, uh, started my own business uh, which brought in income at the same time I knew I always loved science and so I uh, kept you know doing this part-time tutoring business and started a master's in public health loved that had my third baby moved again and uh I took the business to a high school and principal, a prep school, and I said, "Would you like to offer this business?" And he said, "Yes, but we'd like you to teach here." And I was hmm. uh, in my thirties and had never been in a classroom; just had tutored. And he said, "Would you like us? Would you like to teach honors physics?" And I said, "Sure." And so he put me in an honors physics class. I think I cried every day in February of their senior year. And I was the third teacher of the year (laughs) school. And, uh, (laughs) so I had nothing but an old Merrill book. Uh, had
1: you ever taught physics? I mean, you, you said biology and psychology.
0: I had eight hours of pre-med physics from the summer, uh, (laughs) you know, while I was working and, um, when I was a youngster in the summer, I took I took an eight hour physics course. Um, and so I jumped in and I was determined to help the students learn. And so I kept learning and learning and learning and learning and found out I liked it. And then I got a master's in uh, uh, education, got certified in all the sciences and moved again. When I moved again, I taught high school physics for a year at a prep school. Absolutely loved it. Um, and then we, we moved one final time. I told my husband that was it. We came to (laughs) Kansas city and there were no high school jobs available. So on a random whim, I put an application in at Rockers for an adjunct and I got the position, loved it, decided that I needed to go back and get the real degree. And so that's when I started my doctorate program and mine is interdisciplinary in science, education, and physics. And Mm -hmm. I did that while teaching full times and raising kids and still running that business. So, uh, it's, you could have paid me a zillion dollars and I never would have been able to say that I would be here. I think that those varied, varied experiences that I've had, I wouldn't trade them because, um, It took me longer, but, you know, once I got in this, I did it very fast, Uh, just kind of, you know, I'm old, I got to get this thing going. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I've always been that way where I like to keep busy, I like to keep learning, and so uh, those experiences, I think, made made me richer. And I also think that they give me the ability to connect well with this population of students that are Mm pre-med or pre-health because I was them. And what I often tease them is that I developed the program that I would have loved to have had. And so uh, it's, it's a real joy to do what I do. I, I love it. And I wouldn't have traded the experiences for anything.
1: What advantages or perspectives do you feel that you brought with you to the doctor program uh, that the student just out of college uh, may not have had?
0: When I went back to school, I think the majority helped a lot. I also applied for a fellowship. I got the uh, I just took six hours and just to kind of dipped my toe in, and then I thought, okay, well, financially, it would have helped me to get some money to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, Because I was a full-time adjunct at Rockhurst, which is a very low-paying job, and we we needed more income. So I applied for a fellowship, and I got it. And I got the Preparing Future Faculty Fellowship um, at at my doctoral school, which was wonderful. And I think it was great because I had the teaching thing and then the content thing, and I was pedagogically putting them together. And so I, I just... I just know that all that experience helped me vastly through my degree there. I I ended up getting it fully funded. And then I also, uh, it helped me at Rockhurst tremendously.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great.
0: I think though, I might also add that as, as things become more interdisciplinary now, I've been interdisciplinary since I started. It's my background. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I notice, especially at Rockers, that other people are trying to become more interdisciplinary. It's now like not Nancy doing this weird thing, but you know, <laughs> oh, this is cool. Let's do this, you know? And I think that as that happens, it's, I've found myself trying to mentor and start programs at Rockhurst and help in this interdisciplinary. I mean, I'm always, it's so rich. It's so great to have these students integrate and for us to learn. So that's another reason that my varied background has really helped.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a a paper I saw from 2019 that that you uh, published along with many of your uh, colleagues in chemistry and biology. And I have definitely have that on the on the docket to talk about today. I want to hear about your experience with that. I'm curious, what was your exposure to topics in physics education research, uh, either through your early teaching experiences or while studying in your doctorate program? Did Did you have a background in the literature and methods that have emerged from PER?
0: No, no. I think that... Um... I actually don't have a lot of experience in formal PER training. So my, my degree at um, University of Missouri was physics content, which was taught extremely traditionally. Mm -hmm. Um, All the physics majors were in the same or the physics uh, graduate students were in the same courses, no matter where they were going. And then education. And I think that never knowing this in my life i i love teaching with a passion and it just it just kind of fits and so when i was in my doctoral program and i had to design a study i had um uh, several years while i was working at rockhurst i got grants to teach teachers and while mm. i was teaching teachers i learned a lot um, i learned a lot about the constructivist pedagogy Mm-hmm. not through books but through teaching and so I think that my formal training was not there in PER mine is more a clinical you know <laughs> do as you go this is how I feel they learn and and then when I read about the constructivist pedagogy it's like oh okay that has a name you know and uh how can I start inserting this more into what I do.
1: Hmm. But you've kind of naturally intuited what good facilitation of learning can look like.
0: Yes, I think facilitation of learning, um, I think um, presenting and eliciting their prior understanding in a neutral environment. I think reducing fear, which there's a lot of Mm. when you come into physics, Um, and, and asking the questions that really make them think. And many times I would tease that they were things that made me think, you know, like if you're really thinking this should bother you, you know, this should bug you (laughs) and you should kind of be twirling this around in your brain and saying, okay, it doesn't quite fit. I have to make it kind of fit. And so that's, that's like my method of learning. And I just have found that it works well with a lot of my students. You know, when they come into my class, we don't memorize um, they have to think things through
1: I'm sure they hate that
0: <laughs> Well you know <laughs> when I started it was tough uh it 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 now you know after you they, they know they tell their friends you know when you mm-hmm. go in Dr. D's class you are not going to be able to do this she's going to want you to explain and draw and understand And so Mm -hmm. it's gotten easier, but I remember the early years and it was tough because there was a very traditional physics professor and then there was me and I just kind of kept a low profile and did my thing. And then the results happened with the students coming.
1: To tie in with this interdisciplinarity that that you're speaking of, uh, I'm very interested in your development of the physics of medicine major at Rockhurst uh, and your involvement in the living physics portal. I think those will be our two big conversation pieces today. Uh, A wonderful statistic that you learned a few years ago uh, was that Rockhurst was ranked number seven nationally in the number of students who declare physics as their second major and number one for the number of female students whose second major is physics. This type of success at a small college makes us pause and wonder uh, what amazing things are happening. Uh, when Rockhurst first launched its Physics and of Medicine program, you said in an article posted on the Rockhurst website that there were nine students enrolled, and now that was 2018. there are 51 and about 60 percent are female. To understand the success of this program, I'd like to try unraveling some of its beginnings. What was the program like back when you started teaching at Rockhurst?
0: When I first came to Rockhurst as a full-time adjunct, or like a, just an adjunct, I was given the pre-PT program which, which basically had been taught as, um, uh, easy physics, easy, Hmm. easy physics. And, um, my, luckily my one year of, of training in Chicago, I had a nun who I just loved and, she stressed conceptual, deep conceptual thinking. I learned so much from her. And so when I came to Rockhurst and I saw that, I thought, well, no, this is easier than high school. This is not what we're going to do. Oh. And so I started applying some of my natural, because I hadn't gone back to school yet. I just started applying some of my natural tendencies to trying to make them think. And it worked better and better and better. Um, and that class got stronger, Uh I didn't teach the pre-meds. The pre-meds were taught by a much more traditional professor. um, And that was a class I couldn't get into right away um, Mm -hmm. because it was was what I would call a very traditional general physics class with a little bit of calculus. Um, And uh, anyhow, so I just, again, did my thing with the pre-PT students. I would invite, this was intro, I would invite the PT professors in Um, and I did that for a while, just employing good pedagogy, and then I started thinking, well, I need to learn more of what these guys are interested in. I knew nothing about medicine or physical therapy or any of those things. I'd never thought of physics and medicine, but I wanted to make the learning more relevant for my class, so I asked to meet with Rockhurst has a graduate program in physical therapy, occupational therapy, and uh, communication science disorders. So I asked to meet with them and we sat at a table and I brought my physics book, just my regular old physics book. And I said, show me what you need them to learn and I can insert it and I can make what they do more relevant. And so that was the start of me changing that course to make the learning more relevant for my pre-PT students. And Um, make them start to value the course. And they did. And then I would invite the professors in for projects or guest lectures or wheelchair transfers where we could talk about energy and friction and all those kind of things. I took them to the PTOT lab, just things to make that connection because there wasn't that connection. I think um, at one point um, uh, one of our professors had, you know, our other professor had to leave and I took his, Uh, general physics class and I thought well I'm just going to apply the same things Um, and there was resistance at first Uh, and then uh, the resistance was less as I started to ask them questions you know you can't tell me the derivatives negative four I want you to explain to me what that means and can you graph that and can you tie that together with the problem and um, it just got you know more and more popular. And then I think the pre-med students saw the pre two students talking, they talk at Rockhurst. And eventually it just got to where I could teach both of them. And I was teaching them not that differently. Um, anyhow, so it, was, it turned into a good introductory class. When I had this idea for physics of medicine, I actually had gone to a Jesuit physics retreat, which Sounds a whole lot of fun. It is a whole lot of fun. Um, it's a rip roaring time. But we have a wonderful Jesuit community of physics professors, and I found them very helpful to me um, in because I pretty much felt alone. And uh, we were talking about ideas, so I came back to Rutgers, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna. I don't know where I get these ideas. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go get a PhD at 43. (laughs) Um, But I start, I went back and I met the dean and I said, you know, I'd like to start this minor. I'd like to start a physics of medicine minor. And I told her and, you know, I was excited and she was receptive. And so she said, okay. So I developed uh, four new courses. And then I found at that time our dean was a biostatistician and I developed, I worked with her to get the fifth course in health statistics. And so I have no idea why they let me do it, but I did. And I developed the first course, Physics of the Body One. And I basically went to my intro class, which was, I don't know, uh, 30 students maybe. And I talked nine of them into taking the first Physics of the Body course. Mm. So these are pragmatic pre med students who don't want to, you know, typically don't want to take anything that they don't have to. Right. Um, and, uh, but they enjoyed physics and they took the first course and then they took the second course. So I had physics of the body in the first semester, physics of the body in the second semester, developing them as I'm teaching them. Um, and uh, then the next year I started with optics and medicine and medical imaging. So the first year, so the students are staggered. So every year I'll have half juniors, half seniors. And so after that first year of teaching, the next year when we started the next course, it jumped from nine to 31 students coming in. And so the students did that. Um, I'm kind of like a one person advertising machine. And so I would go to classes and talk to students and get excited. And once I felt like I got them in the course, then, then we'd be good. And, and then it kept growing. And then in that was – so then we started in 2009. And then in 2012, I expanded it into an interdisciplinary major. And I took the same five courses that were our foundation, added a capstone, and then offered a lot of interdisciplinary courses that were good for these students. Um, medical Spanish. Am I talking too long?
1: No, I, I'm just wondering how did you find the time to do all that? Because I'm sure you had to teach all of the regular introductory classes, and then you're you're taking on these additional classes sort of voluntarily.
0: Oh, well, I fit them in, and I, I I you know I I work a lot. We have a large teaching load at Rockhurst because we're a teaching university, and I'm very passionate about it. Um, and so when I wanted to start, at the beginning, I only have one section, uh, and now it's grown to two sections of physics and medicine courses each semester. But it, I basically had to give up one intro class, and so I know it's going to make me sound like kind of a nut, but but what I did is I <laughs> would get mm-hmm. adjuncts and train them. Huh. Um, because I'm a strong believer that if we don't teach introductory physics to life science students in a way that helps them find its relevance, I mean, these are academically strong students and they should not be taking something just to check a box. And I mean, that's at the foundation of my beliefs. And mm. I think it's just history and tradition that has made that. So it's such a wonderful subject. And so if, if they don't learn that or find that relevance in their introductory course, there's no reason for them to go on. They have a zillion biology courses or chemistry courses they can take. They have to want to take another physics course. And then in 2009, the wonderful um, AAMC HHMI report came out these Scientific Competencies for Future Physicians. Mm-hmm. Everybody should read that that's teaching IPLS because it was like, yay, you know, somebody with credence, there's this whole committee that is writing these things about interdisciplinary relevant learning and, and competencies of what we want our students to know to go to medical school. Do they you know, they don't use a calculator in in medical school. Do they care what a derivative is or do they care if you can solve for A? No, they want you to have the understanding of how that fits. And so as that came out and then the MCAT, you know, changes came out, it just kind of all, we were already there at Rockhurst and we just kept rolling with it. And it was just so great to have that outside credence.
1: I marvel that that this is simply the way you think about education, and it's exactly the the way I've thought about it as as well. This this wish to make the subject relevant for our students, because that's what's going to to draw them into it, which is is going to cause them to be interested. And even if they don't go on to become a physics major, you know that's in a sense that's almost irrelevant to me. Uh, although if you want to get the program going you you would like to to pull them in but just so they have a better attitude about physics and see that yes this is important this is is valuable to be able to to think this way but i've sat in on so many different committee meetings where if you introduce some kind of idea like that and say i want to make the the topic relevant for my students they'll often come back and say well no that's that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to train them for their careers. We're here to, to show them the critical thinking skills that they can gain from this particular subject. So I'm going to stick to the canonical teaching. Do you, do you encounter that and how do you, how do you kind of bust down that resistance?
0: Well, I think, um, that resistance has been busted down at Rockhurst. Uh, I mm-hmm. am, as you probably, I'm a, I'm a crazy nut worker. I work really hard. Um, I'm passionate about what I do. And an um, example. Now, this week I was teaching these pre-med and pre-PT students. Uh, they learn a lot of physics. I mean, they do. So we were doing NMR and MRI. And I have all these students that really, you know, you would think, do they care about magnetic fields and electromagnetic waves and resonance and quantum spin, but they're learning it because they look at this as valuable to their understanding to understand how an MRI works so that when they prescribe it, they have a deeper understanding than the computer says, do this. And I want them to know why does it have the spatial resolution? It's the physics that determines that spatial resolution and making it better and better. And what do you do to the Lamar frequency or the external magnetic field? I mean, they are learning all this couched in curriculum that's interesting to them. And it kind of blows my mind sometimes because that's kind of hard stuff for a physical therapy person to wade through. They have to want to, they have to want to learn it. So, My argument to that would be they're learning all sorts of physics. You couch it in relevance and you make the learning active and critical thinking based. And, you know, we're helping them gain this understanding that they typically would have left an introductory course never looking back. Um, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, I didn't have to do a lot of administrative things over the years. I did. It's my least favorite part. There have been a lot of different deans, a lot of committees, undergraduate curriculum committee, where I kind of had to work hard to prove the value. Um, The data is the students. You have these students that want to take these courses. We graduated last year, our largest class, 30 students from a school of 1,500 in the physics and medicine program. 11 oh, of those were minors and 19 of those were majors and and we we're only a school of 1500 undergraduates so physics is noted you know and so wow. lately i mean i'm also working to try to get people to recognize it coming in you know, so people at Rockhurst know they like it, but I want the freshmen to come in and say, this is what I want to do. There's all sorts of challenges, you know, biology and chemistry always come first and they put physics off Mm -hmm. or um, math is a challenge. Um, But I would tell you, you know, my courses focus deeply on conceptual understanding that you can quantify with that understanding, but explain your answer. And Mm -hmm. as the... Wonderful physics education community and the IPLS community. It, it, it coming along just made me feel like I had a family.
1: Yeah, and not and not every school is is going to 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 need to have a program like that. I, I think of at at Hamilton College, uh, they have a very robust physics traditional physics major. They're they're graduating twenty to twenty five uh, majors per year in again a college that's about two thousand students. So. When you think your your average small college graduating class might be six to eight students, the fact that they're doing so well, and then to hear your numbers of physics of medicine majors and minors, that is just that is just incredible. You've clearly uh, locked in on something that these students have wanted, uh, and and you've also yeah you've ignited a passion in their heart for for learning.
0: I I think I think. Um... You know, you, you have to look at your population. The people, the students right now, I want all programs to grow. I would love, we have a traditional physics program right now. It's just, we may get one every couple years. Physics of Medicine program, the one that is most popular, it is different. It's not designed at all for students who want to go to graduate school in physics. They would not have the mm-hmm. requirements. It's, it's specifically and uniquely designed for students who want to go into clinical professions, uh, graduate programs. So I have pre-med, pre-prosthetic, optometry, physical therapy. I had last year, I had three pre-optometry students. All three of them got into four schools across the country. Each one of them got four acceptances. I have veterinarians. So I think they also look at it as something that they enjoy and they have to critically think. But again, we have to go back to pragmatism. It looks good on their resume. They can talk about it in an interview. Um, Invariably, that question is, what is this program? And then if you can get them talking about it, it makes, you know, it helps them. Um, Some of them write me back after they're in med school or PT school and, oh, we learned this and we learned this and physics of medicine helped me. And, you know, that's the population that this program is designed to fit. I honestly think our physics program would have turned into a service program.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: without physics and medicine and that's why I have a large um, desire to share with small schools because Hamilton is such a wonderful uh, college but a lot of small schools don't have those physics majors to sustain them and they need something that will allow them to do their passion it's constant new learning it's you don't get bored you know you're just teaching new things I learn new things every every day.
1: No, that's one of the parts I I love about teaching the IPLS curriculum. And uh, when I had started the the biophysics minor at the University of New England while I was there, I just I relished in learning and learning alongside the students and being just enough ahead of them and, and always finding out that my many years of experience with physics behind me actually put me quite a bit ahead of them. So I was never, (laughs) I was never as in sad shape as I thought, but it was always so exciting when they got into a topic and then they would share what they learned in their anatomy and physiology class. Mm -hmm. And they would teach me a little bit of something and they would get excited about the fact that I learned from them. And then I would go and sit in, uh, sit in and talk with the anatomy and physiology professor. And it was just this, this, this great cycle Uh, It was almost sad when I actually did learn it a little bit better than the students and they couldn't teach me that topic as well. Uh, But but then I would go and see something new and it would happen again. So it was Mm -hmm. it was amazing. One of my one of my favorite stories from uh, a course I taught at at UNE was uh, I taught what I called a medical physics course. It was out of Suzanne Kane's book on uh, on medical physics. And we were doing the ultrasound unit. And I found I, I found a, a researcher in, in the uh, School of Medicine, and he had a, an ultrasound machine. And so the first time I had him come into the class to demonstrate it. But then the next year I taught it, I brought it in the class myself to demonstrate it. And it just so happened that my wife, Lena, was pregnant at the time. So she was my special guest, and we we did a little ultrasound on her and some of the students that that knew her as well they were they were in tears in class because they were so moved by the fact that they were getting to do an ultrasound and see this this little baby there uh, and they, they still they still talk about that with us today. I mean, so you can't plan that one every year but I mean, I guess you could. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's just an example of just something that was so memorable for them. It's like, how, how can you capture capture them each each year? In 2012, you received a grant with Mary Lowe at Loyola University, Maryland, to design an active learning physics of medicine curriculum. Um, so it kind of seems like this is when maybe your program really started to take off, because that that's when you had a chance to actually have some grant money to work on developing these things. Uh, So what did, what did that work look like that you were doing and what were the results of those efforts?
0: Um, The modules I developed, uh, you know, they had a lot of years of iteration. Uh, They, I wanted hands-on. I needed hands-on equipment to uh, work through the principles. And so we make, Uh, prototypes. We make prototypes of working models and I write curriculum around those. So for instance, we made a prototype of a lung, um, you know, and just in making that and thinking about it, you know, like where does the pressure need to be negative and, and why is this expanding and how does that relate to the pearl sac and how do all these pressures, work together to keep the lung inflated even when you exhale? You know, what are the net forces? What are the tension uh, factors that make it work in real life, you know, in a healthy individual versus when there's a disease or an injury? Um, And so what works well with my students and I think actually also with faculty, we had at Rockhurst a workshop in February, right before COVID, where we had probably about 20 faculty come in for a day and a half, and we put them through the curriculum that the students go through. It was really fun. So they were working with these apparatuses um, and thinking through their knowledge of physics and how, because the the body is so amazing, you know, and and how you could get to the physics principles. You know, um, so we, we, we make models a lot. And I think one of the predominant things are the model has to be simple enough that you can see and manipulate the physics. And then you have the caveats that, that you have carefully thought through as to what makes it different from the real thing. So you can address the correct physiology but many times, some of those fancy machines hide the way it works. So I think that the grant allowed us the ability to both write curriculum and turn it into a hands-on investigation of mm-hmm. the physics principles that we wrote. And many times you have to break them down so students can see and manipulate. I mean, so for instance, they had all come in with, I would say most of them had anatomy and physiology. They knew what the lung looked like, as you said, better than I. But what we needed to do is say, why does that work? You know, I'd ask him a question. Take a breath, exhale. You know, is there, long, is there air still in your lungs? Well, why? You know, you have to get down to thinking about net forces, which has to do with the play of the pressures um, that are acting on it. So again, through that, God, and then pressure volume graphs and compliance and elasticity mm-hmm. and, you know, work and, energy, you know, the work done, the energy expended, hysteresis. I mean, there's so many principles. And then you get to the alveoli and you have Laplace and you have tension differences and you have, and then interwoven with that, you know, I learned to investigate and apply a pneumothorax, uh, asthma, you know, uh as a resistance. You've got resistance principles. You've got parallel and series principles. You, I mean, there's so much mm. physics in there. You can just really bring in so much.
1: Yeah. And I feel like we're in such the the grassroots of this yet too. Uh, it, it seems like an inevitable conclusion that most physics is being taught to, to non-physics majors. And it's so often that the the students that end up in a physics class will very likely be pre-med. There are so many of those those students, and I, I wonder why not earlier. How didn't we? How did we not discover this earlier? But I'm so excited that we have that we have now, and that uh, there are folks such as yourself working on this and producing this amazing content. Because now I have a Nancy Donaldson to learn from. You didn't. You had no Nancy Donaldson to learn from. Was there any? Who did you learn from, or did you?
0: I asked every doctor and dentist, and I mean, I would go and, you know, my optometrist, I'd stay for an hour. And, you know, (laughs) what I found is that they like it because it changes Mm -hmm. up the day. You know, what can we talk about? Or, uh, you know, I've presented at a few medical uh, conferences, and Mm. I remember my first one was at the AAMC Medical Educators Conference, and I saw the name, and I thought, oh, I'll apply. The way I do most things in my life, Brad, I just think, "Oh, I'll try that." <laughs>
1: uh-huh. And
0: then, and so <laughs> I went to this conference, and I was the only undergraduate person there. Um, it was oh. all medical school professors, residency uh-huh. professors, and medical school deans. And so I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong place." And um, when I got in, uh, I it was expensive. And when I got in, I called the place and I said, "You know, this is a lot of money." I said, "Is this something you know that's actually good to get in?" And person said yes yes it's hard to get so I went anyhow so I went to do my talk and first I thought nobody will be there because these are all mm. you know I'm an undergraduate teacher. These two guys are all med you know doctors and whatever. And so I went and the room was full. Mm. And so again I think the thing is is we as educators need to kind of read our room. And so the first question I had to that room of doctors and deans was how many of you took physics? And they all raised their hand. And then I said, how many of you liked physics? And I would say there were about 50 people, all but three lowered their hand. (laughs) And and I said, well, we can't have that be, you know, that's not what we're doing at Rockhurst. And
1: Yeah, you you had mentioned about how former students get in touch with you. And uh, that's, it kind of gives you a sense of, yes, this is the direction we should go. And I've had that happen as well, where I've had students who uh, I, I particularly go into some depth with the the circulatory system that that's sort of been the the, the special model that I had been working with with uh, Jamie Visenka at UNE, and I would have students uh, in in the the graduate program at UNE because they got in the same program, and they would they would come back down the hallway and say to me, "I just we we learned this in your class, and I'm learning it here in medical school. I feel like I'm I'm way in front of the other students because because we've already started going into this depth, so. So yeah, you say that it's it—they're undergraduate topics, and at the same time, they are also graduate school topics. They're also learning to think about the the body in ways that that are so relevant and important for their careers and for for understanding the pathophysiology. I think there's so much there's so much physics there.
0: It's wonderful to hear from the students at, at that workshop I had back in February. Um, the organizers who are in LPP asked me to have a student panel. It was a Friday mm-hmm. night from five to six or four thirty to six or something like that. So I put it out to my class and I had seven students volunteer mm. and they came and they sat in front of all these physics professors from all over the place. And I just sat in the back and didn't say a word. And, um, I even offered to leave, you know, but they said, no, no, stay, and so all the physics professors asked him a bunch of questions and it was just, we wish we'd had it on tape because it was so cool to hear how them say, I never would have taken this. You know, I, I didn't ever think about taking this. Did I ever think I'd be a physics major? No, you know, and, and it makes them feel good. And, and it, it, it's really fascinating to hear from the students. They are our data, you know, in mm-hmm. addition to research and assessment that informal data of students wanting to do this to me is very very valuable
1: there's there's something to be said about having belief in you uh, i know these students are ju- just knowing knowing you over the the last number of years uh, and your your personality and and teachers never want to take credit for the the successes of their students, and and we shouldn't. But at the same time, there's an inspiration piece. There's there's an unlocking that that we can do, and and you've clearly just unlocked something in these students. You you've given them a, a sense of their own abilities, and you've believed in them. And now they come; they'll be pouring out of the woodworks to. to 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 show how successful they've been because they've just been looking for that chance and I think it's so important that we teachers can can emulate what you, what you're doing there to yeah. just believe in them and to give them support and uh, I mean j- just your your personality is is just. It's, it's bringing this depth out of them. Um, well, so. thank you. I, mm. I, I
0: think that that's what teachers do. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that um, they give me a lot. To, you know, they give me, I, I just love what I do. I'm very lucky to mm-hmm. to have that. And, um, you know, a lot of teaching too is the empathy for our students and the helping them learn something that they they may not have thought they could do, or mm-hmm. you know, finding the way that they can learn, and that's the most rewarding part is just the students, and so yeah, that's mm-hmm. good.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I can understand why it is it could be so hard for a faculty member who has had traditional physics training, which is all of us, to to consider teaching something new. So there is there is quite a, a learning curve, and. You know, maybe not enough reward in the the traditional education system for for going, uh, not enough external reward and motivation to go and do that. The the internal reward is is certainly there in in seeing how the students enjoy this. So there is there is this this learning curve, uh, and I feel like we just we just need to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, We have to be willing to go into the classroom with a topic we've barely started grasping ourselves and just roll with that and trust that that is going to be an incredibly valuable learning experience for our students as well as for ourselves.
0: And see, I think that I'm good at that because I learned so much so so all the time. I did not have the preparation that, you know, I would say most people in my position have had. I'm like in a constant state of, I don't know, I have to learn it. (laughs) but but I also have learned that I can learn it and I can put it together and I can integrate it. And um, I think that's valuable to me. And that's a valuable skill that I want the students, you you know, you can figure it out. You know, one of the things I would love to do would be to have workshops like the one we had in February where we have a lot of physics professors coming in who, who do know the physics, but are learning to integrate it and couch it within in a fun environment where there is not this, you know, I don't know. And I'm, you know, I'm afraid to teach something that my students know and I don't know. And, and I go back to that experience because when those physics professors where we have a new lung, Brad, I don't know, you probably haven't seen it, but it's in the living physics portal, a, a better prototype, but mm. they, I had them working with it and I had two of my students, wonderful POM students who volunteered to come on Saturday morning as well for three hours (laughs) and walk around the room and answer questions. (laughs) They were so cute. They came up to me at one point and they say, well, you know, if it's a technical thing, they'll help. And they said, but if they ask me a question like about a prediction, I just say, I can't, you know, we're going to find out. And they said, "I just do what you do." Oh, <laughs> and they that's said, That is so exciting. They loved being in that position with a bunch uh-huh. of physics professors. Uh-huh. The physics professors were wonderful. They were talking with each other and they were learning from each other. And that's the environment you really need—is that comfortable environment to take what you do know and integrate it with things that you're learning to help it be helpful to a population.
1: The most powerful. Teaching education experience I've ever had was uh, the modeling physics workshop, and that's all about constructivist education. It was a uh, you can I did two one week workshops back to back right before I started teaching uh, at UNE, and I learned how much regular physics I apparently had misconceptions about. It was it was amazing, Uh, but I learned so much from that. It guided it still guides me in in the way I teach, and I think. I think that immersion is really the the way to go. It's great that at the AAPT conferences you can have a half day or even a whole day workshop, but there's there's something about immersing in that environment. And something I would love to see from the IPLS community is could could we put together a, a one week. Workshop where you get together a number of, of faculty who are doing things. You could you could easily lead something for two days, uh, and then have somebody uh, from you know University of Maryland or Swarthmore College or at University of North Carolina. Uh, so many people doing great things, but we really we really have to get immersed in it yes. to really grasp it ourselves.
0: Yes, and it's like you can't just read it. You know, it, it just doesn't do the same thing. You have to be asked the same questions that are making our students think or that we had when we either wrote or developed the curriculum. I think those misconceptions guide our good critical thinking curriculum, you know. And, and so I just think that would be really, really great. It, it, needs, it needs more time and more immersion like that. That's something that I would love to see uh, more of. I think that's a Mm -hmm. great idea. And I know the community workshops at LPP are trying to do that kind of thing. Um, And you know, there again, the hands-on, it was just so wonderful that we were able to Mm -hmm. be together. Uh, Hopefully that will happen again here in the future.
1: We've made a couple of references to the Living Physics Portal, so I want to make sure we have a little bit of a chance to talk about that in more detail. So I know you are on this grant, this almost $2 million grant, uh, Community Sourcing of Introductory Physics for the Life Sciences. Uh, and with members spanning across multiple institutions. So the release of the Living Physics Portal is a big piece of this grant. Can you say a little bit about how this grant came together, how all these different institutions got together? What were those early conversations like, and what was the big picture that you were hoping for?
0: Well, my initial involvement was from Bob Hillborn at AAPT, who has I have seen at conferences for years because I've been involved with AAPT. And he wrote me um, to see if I'd be interested. And I jumped. I said, yes. I mean, this is a community I'm so thankful for. I love being involved with. And so I said, yes. Um, my role on it is is as a seed contributor. So all the schools you mentioned um, are in charge of taking curriculum we've already uh, developed. And so a lot of it, I think the reason I was asked was because I had a prior NSF grant for physics of medicine. And so I had curriculum that had been vetted and you know, out for a long time. Uh, well, basically with me, and then um, they asked me if I would contribute it. So part of my role is contributing my curriculum, which I'm thrilled to do to the Living Physics Portal. And then part of my role in the beginning was kind of like a test case for what would you do if you were a user? You know, does this work mm-hmm. for you or your curriculum? So in the website design, the seed contributors worked with the, the website developers and uh, quite a bit, they would have focus groups and questionings to try to develop the Living Physics Portal in the most user adaptable way. Um, and we had a lot of meetings, um, and we had good follow-up, we've had community, we've had workshops. It's really just been a wonderful, um, wonderful experience. The idea of the portal is that when we put curriculum on there, number one, it's free, that, that's very important t- to me, mm-hmm. and um, it is uh, copyright protected you know, copyright safe, it's open. So anything Mm -hmm. that is on there in my curriculum is either comes from a source that is Creative Commons usable, or Mm -hmm. we've drawn it. Uh, It's ours, you know, we've taken a picture. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, valid to go on that portal. Um, And then that is able to be downloaded by anybody who is on the living physics portal and and they are welcome to adapt it and you know so mine is in word purposely because i have a you know i have basically i teach four courses past introductory physics and so i have time Mm -hmm. that others don't but it's in there and they can take it and do what they'd like to with it but there's enough background that they can read different parts, they can cut and paste, they can adapt. You know, there's all the instructions for building the things that we build, uh, built. And um, I think that makes it, because, you know, we never use curriculum the way other people write it. Of course not, right, yeah. We (laughs) need to have it very easily adaptable. And then all the, you know, so I have, you know, uh, instructor version, which has all the answers. So teachers, Mm -hmm. in my experience, have very little time. And they also may not be comfortable with the kind of thinking that, you know, I might have been using to develop it. So the answers are there. So they'll kind of either see mm-hmm. the thinking or say, okay, I'm going to use this, but I might go this way. Um, it also has a lot of metadata. So it has all of, you know, learning, ge- learning objectives, assessments matched to learning objectives, um, metadata on how to use it. Um, and so it's, it's a curricular resource that you can adapt
1: now the the physics living physics portal is kind of in a beta phase yet, but is it open for anybody who would want to to log in?
0: If you're an educator, uh, you have to be an educator, and so they approve you to log in. They will not let commercial companies in. And so, if you have a um, email, you know from your institution, and you write Sam, who you previously interviewed, uh, they have a method there to say this is an you know valid educational person and they will allow you into the portal.
1: Great. Hear that everybody you can go and you can find <laughs> Nancy's materials. Uh, so on on the, the show notes for this show uh on my website I'll provide uh some of the things that we've been talking about. I'll I'll show some examples of, of what your curriculum looks like, but generally I'll just I'll point people to to try signing up for for the portal to check it out to see uh, all of the great material that's that's there, and I know it's still in its early stages, so there's only so much to find at the moment. But it's uh, we want to grow it quickly.
0: Can I add one more thing in real quick?
1: Sure. Yes. I
0: have a, a. I'm on a current grant now with Portland State University, and I'm I'm basically writing an entire. Well, it's going to take a long time, but I'm <laughs> I'm writing in physics and medicine fashion, introductory physics for biomedically relevant students. So we're starting on mechanics. And so the curriculum is, it's pretty extensive. It has text. It has learning activities. Um, it, it ha- Everything's matched to objectives. It has assessment questions matched to objectives. The curriculum is, is going to be very complete. Um, the first two chapters are currently in testing at Rockhurst um, on um, motion in the human body and forces that cause changes in motion in the human body. And they will be posted to the portal after we get some initial data. Mm-hmm. Um, and any one of the learning activities could stand as its own you know, thing, but the goal is to put it in as a curriculum so that instructors new to this can again go in, use what they'd like, have have something cohesive to help them start.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very excited about this project as well, and I know you're working with uh, Ralph Weedenhorn uh, at Portland State, and I've had a chance to work with him for a semester during my sabbatical, so uh, I'm going to line him up for one of these interviews as well, and we'll go into a lot more details about this project and about his his previous projects that were very similar. Yeah, so the the last piece I wanted to to talk about a little bit, and it was where our conversation almost kind of started with this interdisciplinarity idea. So uh, just last year, I guess, uh, you along with members of chemistry and biology department uh, published a paper called Development of an Interdisciplinary Conceptual Conservation of Energy Theme for Use in Undergraduate Physics, Chemistry and Biology courses. A mouthful, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so faculty members from all three of these departments came together to create a common thread. And it looks like from the paper, you were considering a few different threads, maybe possibly going into fluids, maybe this or that, you decided on energy conservation across the disciplines. So how did this collaboration come about? And what have been some of the, the early successes with that?
0: Well, I I need to throw this in real quickly, is that when you mentioned modeling physics, a lot of my learning came when I was an adjunct and I got thrown in, you know, kind of took over a grant program where I was teaching teachers. We used out of San Diego State and Fred Goldberg's um, conceptual physics understanding. And that's where you know it's it was kind of, I think, a predecessor to modeling physics. and, oh, okay. and so that whole elicitation, I mean, again, that fit very well with my constructivist thinking. Um, but one of the things that was used in there was an energy diagram. Well, I love what I learned from Fred Goldberg's program, and I took that energy diagram and I used it to um, in my physics of medicine classes to help students um, kind of find a pathway from one thing to the next. So, for mm-hmm. instance, if you're going from uh, ultrasound to PET to an MRI to an X-ray, there's all these details that go into how they work, how they create an image, how they get spatial resolution, what they do to the patient. But the one unifying thing between them, um, because even, you know, you go to ultrasound, you can't say it's light. It's, you know, it's, it's energy. Mm-hmm. So they're putting energy into something, a lot of things are happening, and then you get energy out. And all the physics comes into how all of those things happen. So I tried to take this dense material for a lot of them and give them something to hold on to from chapter to chapter. And that's where I got the idea of using the energy diagram. I also used it in physics of the body when we talked about, um, I mean, I had eat a cookie. What happens? Where's that energy go? Well, you can make that thing so complicated. I mean, you could get into all of metabolism. A lot of these students are in biochemistry. And, you know, I wanted them to realize that you define your system. And then within your system, you look at the energy changes and you can make that really, really detailed and end up with something that kind of visually gives you an understanding of what you're seeing. And then you can put in all your equations, different ways, all of that kind of stuff. So I had this idea of energy. I, I one time taught, the last time I taught intro, which was about, golly, six years ago, I wanted mm-hmm. to do something different because, you know, that's that's me. So I thought, I'm not going to do this the same way. I was teaching it. I thought, I'm just going to do it differently. I started with energy. And I taught the entire introductory course through energy diagrams we did everything through it. And it was so fun. And another good thing about it is it was different. So they hadn't had this in high school. They couldn't come in expecting to see, you know, a kinematic equation. We, I just taught it totally different. And they loved it. And they learned and they had to conceptually think because the questions weren't the same that they were used to. What started the whole thing with our departments is, you know, you need somebody to work with. So wonderfully, we had a division uh coordinator who brought up interdisciplinary she and I got to talking and um we were at a meeting and I she said mentioned something about it and some person said well you know we don't get any leave for this or any you know load to develop and I said well you know guys this is just fun why don't we just get in a room and talk about curriculum you know It's not going to fill a committee. It's not going to give us love. But we just have fun, and we talk about what we teach. And so we got some interested people in a room, and we said, okay, let's see what we teach. There has to be a connection. And if our students – oh, and I know what brought it up. The biology teacher said something about the Gibbs free energy equation, which I have to Mm -hmm. be honest, I did not remember. (laughs) You know, it's been forever since I took biology. So she was describing it to me, and I said, that's an energy diagram. You know, that's like – First law of thermodynamics. You're just putting it in this context. And so, you know, I I said, well, you guys teach it with these letters and we teach it with these letters. And the students don't realize it's, you know, they're learning energy conservation. So let's make it more understandable for them. And that was really cool conversation. And so then we started working through um, energy diagrams in all of our courses to try to give them something to hold on to as they went from course to course. So that they didn't seem so discreet. And that's how that started.
1: Yeah, just to to actually have students doing a similar thing in different classes, you know, to actually have an energy diagram that they use in physics, then they'll use that same methodology and say chemistry and biology, I think, would be mind opening for students to realize, whoa, what? Yeah. Are these professors talking to each other? Is there <laughs> is there some commonality? What's going on here?
0: It's so fun because you learn things. You know, I went mm-hmm. back and relearned about you know Gibbs free energy and, and relearned about orbitals and you know and then it it fits into my schema and I think that creating helping students create that schema is is helpful. You know, so mm-hmm. valuable to them.
1: Out of curiosity, are these energy diagrams, are they related at all to the energy tracking diagrams that Rachel Schur and her group at Seattle Pacific University have used? Or is this something a little different? i have to
0: be honest that I don't know those. Um, The energy diagram that I use, and this is kind of where I started and got off track, is from Fred Goldberg's
1: CPU
0: class. And so Uh I remembered that from when I took that, and that's what I started using to develop it. For mine in medical imaging, they have to very clearly define and detailed define the scenario. So, for instance, last week, one of their um, questions on a take-home question was to um, develop an energy diagram for a hydrogen proton oscillating in a magnetic field. (laughs) And... (laughs)
1: A diagram for that,
0: huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. they got the radio frequency in at the Lamar frequency, you know, it creates resonance, the energy changes, what it does with the flip of the spin, and then when the pulse goes off, it goes to an induction current. I mean, they can think through those things and that thinking through those things, not just reading it, but having to kind of put it on a piece of paper and visualize and talk about the process, I just think it's really good for their learning.
1: What has been a, a highlight? moment or moments in your career we will kind of end there
0: oh my goodness there are so many um i guess my students when i hear from them how much this means to them Mm -hmm. and that they've learned and that they're so excited to See physics and to realize its relevance and how important it is to where they're going. Um, it definitely highlights would have to be just students, the student response. You know, the, the grants are wonderful, and, and we got the uh, APS Excellence in Undergraduate Physics Education Award. That was wonderful.
1: Oh, congrats. Um,
0: the, the community of people I get to work with, all of those are so wonderful, but the the starting of 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 the whole and the majority of all my work and all my energy comes from my students.
1: That's why we're here, right? And that's mm-hmm. why we're doing what we're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and there's so much there's so much reward there. Uh, yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. Nancy, thank you so much for speaking with to me, speaking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, I, could, I can just speak with you for hours. I feel so inspired and motivated after, <laughs> after talking with you.
0: Well, I really enjoyed it, and I, I appreciate you asking me. Uh, so thank you very much.
1: I really do think I could have kept speaking with Nancy for another two hours. Our conversation did actually linger for another 20 minutes or so afterwards, but I'd already stopped recording. Sorry, folks. I really marvel at how she just gets it. Most teachers start their careers by modeling themselves after the instructors that taught them. Whether or not that's what they want to do, it's just how it happens. And often that mode of teaching is the lecture style. Be a sage on the stage. Derive equations from first principles. Solve a few example problems show a flashy demo here and there, assign 50 problems for homework each week, and give a big old midterm and final that are worth about 75% of the total course grade. I bet that's how Nancy was taught, too. But somehow she felt that wasn't it, especially not for her students, individuals who had medical careers in mind. She wanted to serve them. She wanted physics to be a value for them. Her agenda is their agenda not some unspoken physics agenda from on high. I love that. And she also intuited that good teaching means asking students lots of questions and designing activities that guide them to figure things out for themselves. That takes time, and maybe not as much content can be covered. But these students are learning at a deep level, and they like physics. They've come out of the intro class wanting more physics. Nancy is doing something very, very right. I want to go back to something that I I just said there. She wants to serve her students. At some point during our conversation, and I can't remember if I kept it in the episode, she commented that without the growth of the Physics of Medicine program, the physics major at Rockhurst would probably have folded, and the physics department would have only offered service courses. I would argue, though, that in fact, she is offering a service to these students. The entire program is a service program. And while that word, service, is often thrown around with a negative connotation, oh, this class is just a service course for the pre-med students. Well, if we aren't in this field of teaching to serve whoever comes into our classroom, then what is it that we are doing here? I think we should be serving our students. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Nancy, see a recap of major topics that we discussed, and access links to articles and other resources mentioned in the episode, head on over to physicsalive.com forward slash Nancy to check out the show notes. That's physicsalive.com forward slash Nancy. While you are there, you can subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter, so that you can stay up to date with current episodes, future projects, and ways to share with the show's listeners. If you are on social media, you can check out Physics Alive on Twitter and Instagram, and go to facebook.com forward slash page. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a five-star rating and review of the show. This helps other educators like you find the show. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Your homework assignment Go register for the Living Physics Portal and find one resource to try out in your class. Maybe go and check out one of Nancy's resources. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, keep serving whoever comes through the door and be well.